my work, my first great work didn't happen because I was really good at making it the first try. I just was relentless going back out there with my dull machete, chopping through the tall grasses and filling in the blanks and coming back and looking at what didn't work and then going back and filling it. It took me trip after trip after trip with people telling me that they would not publish it. Yeah. And then it became a TED talk. Yeah. And then it became an at geo cover story. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Rome from Home podcast, hosted by myself, Chris Gerard, founder of Rome, and Corey Richards, National Geographic photographer, alpinist, storyteller, and the king of the conversation here on Rome from Home. Today, we have a very special treat for you. Aaron Huey, also a National Geographic photographer, longtime friend of Corey's. Uh, Corey and Huey go deep in this conversation. I was happy to be an observer on it. We, we dive into all sorts of stuff that is so relevant to today and also into his history uh, as a photographer and as an artist, as an activist. Um, and we talk a little bit about his 3,349 mile walking journey across the country with his dog and his gold shoes. Uh, and how that led to a lot of other things, a, a, a journey that had no specific purpose and no specific end in a way. Um, and he, he, he walks us through that a little bit, that it's pretty relevant to where we are today. Uh, what else, Corey, what else did we um, well, in for on this one? I mean, I think this is one of the most illuminating conversations we've had on the podcast so far, simply because Aaron Huey is a tireless force um, when it comes to art and activism and journalism. Uh, he is an incredible uh, mouthpiece for a time of tumult. And um, he has carved out a niche in this world as somebody who can and does make viral content that moves the dial uh, regarding global conversation. Uh, and I have always been a fan um, and I'm just super pleased uh, to, to have him on the show. Uh, this conversation goes deep into fatherhood, into art, into creation, into how to play an active role in society uh, today and, um, and bounces around between all of those things. So I hope you guys enjoy. Um, it's a hell of an hour. It's a, it's a great one. Check out Aaron at AaronHuey.com. Uh, Amplifier.org is the organization that he founded that is for a, basically a social network for activist artists. It is amazing. Uh, and then also his latest project and, and website, HelloPrototype.com. You can check him out in all those places and also on Instagram, social media. Um, enjoy. Um, we have uh, the good fortune of having an amazing guest today, Mr. Aaron Huey. Uh, I'm going to let Corey introduce Aaron <laughs> as they have a long history and, and uh, much of this conversation. As with many conversations, Corey is the king of conversation, uh, <laughs> asks all the good stuff, takes it to the good places. Um, but I'm just really a huge fan of, of your work, Aaron, and I think there's so much that you're doing right now that is uh, very appropriate for us to, to dig into. So um, I think the audience is going to love this episode, and thanks for spending the time with us. Um, and I will, I'll kick it over to my co-host, Corey, to run with it from here. So thanks. <laughs> I'm going to actually kick it back to Aaron in just a second because I do think it's so important to hear how people introduce themselves. But I, um, I've known Aaron Huey as, first and foremost, I, I, I was introduced to Huey as a climber, um, as sort of a fellow adventurer, somebody who was at the crags um, and somebody who has made an incredible artistic contribution to the climbing guidebook community through his <laughs> the holy bible of 10 sleep um which is amazing and uh but but aaron has been a consistent voice in the adventure community and then turned into a very very um you know hardcore hard-hitting journalism for a while uh has had adventures and assignments that have led him all over the all over the planet um 
and has been, you know, on the main TED stage uh, speaking about his work in Pine Ridge Reservation with the Lakota, um, and has recently turned his work into social activism and becoming a, a in in essence, a spigot or a, a fire hose in this in this world of um, activist uh, activism as art or art as activism, literally art um, with Amplifier Foundation. So uh, his work spans a huge amount, uh, a huge arena, a broad uh, horizon as it were. And I'm really interested for people to know how you, Aaron, introduce yourself. When somebody walks up and says, what do you do? Who are you? What's your answer? Mm. I, it's evolving. I think right now, I, I think I'm going to remake that public persona to be about a little bit more about the larger set of media experiments that I create, because I, I feel a lot less tethered to one individual medium. Yeah. Um, we're lucky enough to have that stage of National Geographic and some of these places to, to amplify that kind of storytelling. But I've really, while I still do that, I'm, I'm now doing augmented reality virtual reality, uh, street art projects, uh, animation. It's kind of whatever the cause needs is the medium I will work in. So uh, I, I make prototypes, I make media experiments and- <laughs> I love it. I, what do you do? I make media experiments. You're like Seth Godin, but different with gold toms. And that's the other thing about Huey is he has some, some signature features that we'll get into later in this. Mm -hmm. but. You did start, and, and, and initially, like, my big introduction to you socially uh, and artistically was through National Geographic as a fellow photographer. Yeah, we were in the same class almost. Like, if there are classes at Nadu, we were, like, class of 2011. Yeah, yeah. We got brought in sort of at the same time. We and you and Jimmy and, yeah, we are all yeah. at the same time. So how did, you get, how did you get to that point? Because you have a pretty interesting backstory that brought you to National Geographic. I mean, your, your history as a photographer is much broader than that. Yeah, uh, I was doing editorial, scrappy editorial assignments all over the country and all over the world. And uh, one project went way, way deeper than any other. Uh, it was my project on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. And it was one of those projects where editors kept telling me they weren't going to run it because it had been done before. Um, but I just kept going. I got sucked in so deep. I went deeper and deeper and deeper and it eventually became a Ted talk. And then it became a street art project. Uh, an evolution of it became a street art project with Shepard Ferry and Ernesto Urena and a group of artists that is now uh, the nonprofit that I founded called amplifier.org. And then it became a national geographic cover story, which was my entry into that magazine. So b before that, you, correct me if I'm wrong, you like walked across America. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just, I, I want did. people because like. I did walk across America. <laughs> I mean, I th and I always view that as, yeah, you're like, oh, yeah, that one thing that I did. I always view that as sort of your big breakout. You know, that was yeah. onto the global scale of photography. Probably, yeah. That was my first published body of work. I was, uh, I was living on what would become an art commune in New Mexico. And uh, I packed up everything and got dropped off at the Pacific Ocean and walked for 154 days with like one Leica and one lens, a 35 millimeter 2.0. And I, the, the goal of it was not to make a photography project, but uh, a set of portraits of America came out of that. And I remember sending them as a box, just a box of physical prints to the editor in chief of the Smithsonian. Not even the photo editor, just the editor-in-chief, just a box. And he handed it to Molly Roberts, a photo editor there, and said, this is, let's do this. And that was really my first published story ever, was the Walk Across America. And then beyond that, I just want to give people sort of a breadth of the, of the photographic work that you, that you did and you've done um, before, because I think, it, I think it informs what you're doing now. Mm -hmm. and, then you then you hitchhiked across Siberia, right? Yep. Uh, that what was it? It was an attempt to replicate a little bit of the like the scary length of an unknown journey like that, where it was a little bit faith driven of just like it, I know it's this direction, but I have to go on faith. And I wanted more of that I I missed it because something was unlocked on that walk across America that I still haven't really unlocked anywhere else in my life. 
uh, because it was so long and so impossible that it that I I couldn't see the end. So I had to let go of a lot of ideas about product or completion or audiences and stories. I had to let go of a lot of the stories. It really just at a certain point, it was so long and so endless. It just became a ritual of eating, sleeping, walking and talking to people. And that was it. And it made some very clean thing in my life that right in the middle of it was really like an epiphany that I, I don't, I, I always wanted to try to replicate that again, but I, I don't think I've ever given myself enough time. But I, I, you know, Russia was part of that. It was how, to, how can I go into some huge unknown with a general direction and see what happens? I mean, but that's, that's sort of the golden handcuffs, right? You get wrapped into this industry, you become a content creator and the things, the freedom that you had to do, that, that you had to create the original work that got, got you the attention no longer exists. You don't have the time anymore to go yeah. that deep. Well, and thank God I did not have an assignment for that White Cross America. It would have colored the whole thing. Right. I would have been worried about what an editor wanted. I would have been trying to please a particular audience. It really was pure because it, nobody owned it. Um, and even now, like I think about it now, every piece of it would be being told on social media and have hashtags and it just would change it. It would have too many eyes on it. it it was special because it didn't. So is there a way now, I mean, in, in, cause you as a national geographic photographer, as I do get asked all the time, like, what do I do to, to, you know, become that thing? Um, what is your feedback when you get asked that question in light of the conversation we just had? I think it's, I mean, so many people and I get, I'm sure you get people sending you portfolios of stuff that are like greatest hits and stuff like that. But I very rarely see something where somebody sends something that just goes so deep that it's clear that it has taken over their whole life. Like, that's what I want to see. I want to see that body of work that is deeper and more different than anything I've ever seen. And I think that's how a lot of people crack into National Geographic, like taking the thing that's already been done, but going so much further. Mm -hmm. Uh, that it doesn't matter how many times it's been done and making more and deeper and in a new way. So I just always tell people that come to me to just go as deep as humanly possible, far beyond the comfort zone into one idea and just keep iterating and filling in the gaps. Like this didn't, my work, my first great work didn't happen because I was really good at making it the first try. I just was relentless going back out there with my dull machete, chopping through the tall grasses and filling in the blanks and coming back and looking at what didn't work and then going back and filling it. It took me trip after trip after trip with people telling me that they would not publish it. Yeah. And then it became a TED Talk. Yeah. And then it became a Nat Geo cover story. But years of people saying this is not worth doing. Why do you think people were telling you it wasn't worth doing? It had been done by many people really well. <laughs> um, I think that they, you know, they didn't have the vision to see where it could go or it just, they were focused on whatever was the news of the day. That's often what drives editors is like, well, how is this relevant right now? And there are some stories that, you know, on first glance are not relevant to today's headlines, but in the depth of storytelling that you can do on a personal level, you can, I think, make things relevant again, even if it doesn't have a news hook. And we're so obsessed now with the news hook on everything. I mean, do you think that's been to the detriment of good storytelling? Uh, I think we've lost some good stories. I, I think it's really important to tag into like, why should we care right now in this week or this moment? But there's been some loss for, the, for that, like the poetry of those stories that, that you could tell in almost any year. Like I miss some of that poetry. You and and I, I like I'm I I definitely have an agenda with this conversation. I want people to know that I'm leading Aaron somewhere. All right. um, but it's but it's I want people to understand the backstory because without getting to understand the next question or without the answer to the next question, I don't think where we've ended up makes sense. Tell me about tanks. The tank wedding. The tank wedding, but also hiding under tanks or hiding oh, under yeah. cars and. Um, I wasn't hiding under tank. I wish I was hiding under a tank. <laughs> when I when I was being shot at, I was hiding under an unarmored Ford F one hundred and fifty with no, you know. <laughs> and where was this? 
uh, Oruzgan, Afghanistan. What, what, what had brought you there? Uh, I was, I went to Kabul actually to do a story for National Geographic Adventure about Rory Stewart and his attempt to rebuild the old city of Kabul and reschool craftsmen in traditional Afghan crafts. Um, but I got there and I fell in love with the place and I ended up living there like seven months. And my future wife ended up coming over to be there with me. Uh, and while I was there, I was doing a lot of coverage of the war on drugs and in the middle of coverage for The New Yorker, I was almost killed in a rolling ambush that lasted four and a half hours and have written extensively about that kind of incident. And, you know, the crux moment of that was being under the wheel towards the end of this ambush uh, and realizing that I was probably going to die and that the, I didn't really think about my career or my family or anything. I just thought about my, this woman that I'd been stringing along for five years, Kristen, <laughs> and what an asshole I was and what the fuck was I waiting for? You know, I, uh, I was being selfish. I was waiting for her to change instead of me to change. And I kind of had a, a big wake up there. And I, you know, if I decided if I didn't die there that I was going to go back to Kabul and, and stop fucking around and marry this woman. And uh, John Lee Anderson, the writer from the New Yorker got ordained online when we eventually got back after, you know, a whole bunch of other really dramatic incidents on that assignment and married us in a field of tanks outside of Kabul on the Jalalabad road. <laughs> I mean, it's, I laugh because I'm almost crying because it's such a, it's such an intense and beautiful and hysterical story that, I mean, that speaks to sort of some of the, the stubbornness of creatives and, and the stupidity of men in some ways that it takes being shot out or nearly killed and hiding under a car to realize that we're a dick. Yeah. And, you know, but at the same time, I think it colors the future. All of us, you know, there's a, there's a moment there to me in your career where things become less about you and more about an exploration of the impact that you can have uh, in a broader context. And so, you know, in there, the, the Pine Ridge story percolates to the top. I mean, it, later on, it percolates to the top. And, and that becomes this cover story. And then, and then all of a sudden, street art is involved. Mm -hmm. There's like these massive murals that look oddly like the work of Shepard Ferry but they're your photographs or pieces of your photographs that have been created. What, how did this? They, they were the work of Shepard Ferry. Well, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I know that's it. So how did that happen? That's a really interesting, that was a really interesting moment because then it, it changed the trajectory of a lot of things in my life that still roll on and are very active right now. As big as a magazine like National Geographic is and as big as that platform is, there is still a ceiling that in some ways uh, can be quite low on certain topics. It's, you know, the job of National Geographic is not to be an activist publication or to do social activism. You know, maybe the only case now where I would say that's not true is they can do activism that is science related. So I find them to be quite activist on the environment because they're, it's fact-based. But in doing a cover story on Pine Ridge, they weren't gonna dig really deep into activist language that the people on the streets of Pine Ridge wanted out in the world. You know, the people there wanted to talk about honoring treaties and giving back land and that, you know, you could, you could touch on that topic inside the story, but um, they wanted more and I wanted more. And I had done a Ted talk that was very activist in nature with a punchline at the end that said, you know, give back the Black Hills. It, it's not your business what they do with them. And that kind of needed a new media outlet. So the dream was what if I could take my imagery with the words of people in that community and go around the magazines and put it straight into the streets where people couldn't choose to subscribe or not subscribe. And the dream was the greatest street artist in the country. And he said, yes, because he saw the Ted talk and we started building collaborations. Uh, and they went up in dozens of cities and it grew and grew and grew and the campaigns grew over the years way beyond indigenous land rights into larger stories about the environment and, and what all humans are struggling to get access to clean water and the right to go to school without getting shot by a, you know, by a, you know, somebody with an automatic weapon, uh, 
the topics now, you know, are on, on really everything. Anything's on the table for those art projects. And now it, instead of it just being me and Shepard Ferry and a couple of other artists, it's 500, 600, 1,000 artists. We're running a campaign right now that has uh, 6,800 submissions just this month. You know, so 5,000 plus artists deep of a portfolio. And where did like, so, so you, you come back or you're married, you, um, you do the Pine Ridge work, you start this collaboration with Shepard and then uh, Hawkeye, your son, um, comes along in there in that time period. When was Hawkeye born? Hawkeye or was born uh, <clears throat> before, my, before the first Nat Geo assignments. Hawkeye was born okay. in December of 2009, but pretty soon after Hawkeye was that first big entry into the National Geographic world. And simultaneous to that was the big media experiment work and, and looking into the future of journalism at Stanford as a Knight Fellow. And mm -hmm. all of that kind of mixed at one moment of getting a bigger picture vision of, of what journalism could be in that 2011, 2012 year that that cover story was being made. So that brings up a really good point um, and something that I think a lot of people are curious about right now. Um, activism and journalism, right? Those are two things that seem at times um, incompatible and yet you have made a career out of walking the line between activism and journalism. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? I, I was pretty nervous about that at first. I actually thought, you know, while I was doing that, that first big Nat Geo story that they would be upset about the, the activist nature of, of what was happening with that art project. But I think all these big media entities are realizing the need for passionate and super personalized storytelling where the stories about why we do it and the deeper layers that go beyond what ends up in the editorial, that's really the heart of a lot of these. And, and I think it's just more acceptable, I think, now to be able to talk about why we care enough to do that story. Like that story mm -hmm. moved me, it changed my life. And most of these stories do. Like you grab any story, the Sherpa story, like my interactions with the Sherpa and what happened after the avalanche on Everest, like those personal connections, that's, it's as important or more important than the global feature that ends up in the, in the pages of the magazine, because all that extra storytelling that is the true raw voice of the people, it comes out in the art, it comes out in the social, and it often does not come out in the published editorial piece. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, I don't know, how do I do it? I'm not quite sure if I'm answering that right. How do I walk the line? Well, it, or, or, it drives me. I'm not, it's, I'm kind of, it's hard to avoid doing work, trying to shift. I'm not just a, I'm not just a, a witness that does, has no opinions and none of us are. I think it's crazy to pretend like we're just witnessing and we're not trying to move something in the world when we do these year, two year, eight year long stories. We have agendas to, to wake people up to particular issues and to move policy and to see change happen in the world. So, I, I mean, I guess I, that, I think that answers it perfectly. You know, like the, I think for so long, um, many people, and still there's sort of a, a, there's a standard that people ap apply to journalism, which means that you, you're not supposed to have sort of an opinion. Um, right. And, and I think that I think your answer, you know, especially as it applies to you is really honest and relevant. Um, but, I, but I think a really important thing to point out is that I'm still open to being surprised and I still go in with that journalistic integrity because a good example of that is the last cover story I did a year and a half ago on public lands. I went in personally uh, being a fierce advocate for public land preservation and doing over conservation rather than under conservation mm -hmm. and so I was going into that story pretty biased but I knew that like if I was gonna if people were gonna trust me and if I was gonna do work at that scale of National Geographic I had to go in and be as indifferent as humanly possible because I was gonna live with people that were anti-monument and I was mm -hmm. gonna ask them to trust me and to take me into their world and they did um, 
And a lot of them changed my ideas about a lot of things. Um, I still can be swayed. I still do go in and say, I want to hear this uranium miner all the way out and yeah. not go in with some kind of lens like, I'm going to set this guy up. I'm going to get the pictures and show him and, and get some good work to really help the other side. I didn't go in to do that. Like when you, you see my talk on that topic, I am very empathetic actually for many of the characters that people have villainized because it's yeah. real, real easy to make this stuff black and white in this new uh, post-Trump world. Well, but that, okay, so you just hit on a word. Um, it wasn't post and it wasn't world. It was Trump. Um, <laughs> the, uh, <coughs> you start this, this art sort of collaboration with Shepard Ferry around the Pine Ridge work. You do the TED Talk. There are these street murals that have taken your photographs um, and are now sort of being taken outside the subscription world, respect the treaties. Uh, it's a loud, it's a, it's a loud, it's an amplified message. In 2016, we go through an election cycle and you uh, step in with Shepard and with a handful of artists with Amplifier um, to create a body of work that that is meant to have a very loud voice in that moment. Can you, can you walk us through that and tell us about that? That's a huge story. I don't know how to compress that really. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, it, moments of crises, I think are, are some of the easiest moments for me to do my work because it, whether it's, you know, a, a moment like Trump's election where, you know, fear and discrimination are running rampant or a moment like this current COVID moment in moments like these, all of my work gets really sharpened because the path is so clear. There's mm -hmm. no more distractions. So like a lot of the rest of the world, when, that, when Trump was elected, you know, it kind of like erased everything and there was a rolling set of emergencies of people being like attacked and about systems crumbling. The path was really clear. After a couple of days of like freaking out, I quickly just started getting all the people I knew together to start saying, how are we going to use what we have to work on this problem. And the vision was pretty clear from the beginning. And it was, you know, I saw the ability to work with Shepard to make really something like an image of hope in a time with no hope. Mm -hmm. right? His original hope image was of Barack Obama and the Barack Obama hope image. But we were now entering an era where the hope could not come from political leaders. And we were looking at really specific communities under attack. So how to shift that hope or future or vision for the future into, it, into those communities. And it's when we built We the People. And we knew that, we knew the moment, we knew we had a certain runway to get to that moment of the inauguration. And that at that moment, every television camera in the world would be pointing at one place. Super clear moment. We knew the vehicle. I knew that I wanted them to go out as full page ads in newspapers because uh, there was an unprecedented, unprecedented uh, clamp down on the ability to take in signs to the inauguration route, but nobody can tell you you can't carry a newspaper. That was the whole concept behind the hack. Mm -hmm. How do we get symbols uh, into those routes, uh, even though that's illegal to get them in there? Um, and we worked with communities, people like you, people, poets, teachers, people that worked at foundations, journalists, you know, regular friends of ours to ask, okay, we know we can get the entire world's attention on this day. What do we want to say? Um, and through a series of kind of workshops in New York and San Francisco and all over the country, we arrived at reclaiming that American language of we the people, but rerouting it in a set of subtext. We the people are greater than fear. We the people defend dignity. We the people, we the people protect each other. Um, and there was another couple, we the people, uh, we the indivisible, and another one, we the resilient, with Ernesto Urena and Jessica Sabogal. Um, and, it, and it worked. We raised, uh, we put up a Kickstarter that raised $1.36 million in seven and a half days, eight days, something like that. Uh, Public art. And it's, I broke the Kickstarter record for the most backed kick, art Kickstarter in history with 22,000 840 small backers. Uh, all the art was free downloads. We still see it moving around the world. I, you can still see it in 
coffee shop windows in most cities I, I visit. So, I mean, this is a, I don't think the importance of this moment can be overstated. You've moved at this point, at least in my eyes. Um, and we, we get together, you know, once, twice, sometimes three or four times a year. And, and oftentimes it's, we're, we're bitching and moaning about, you know, life and certain whatever, but, but, you know, our jobs and, and the state of journalism or whatever. But it, at this point you have, you took this enormous leap from being a, a, a photographer to being, a, a social disruptor, a social commentator, somebody who's moving the conversation in a radical way. And I know it's not you. Yeah, I know it's a whole team of us. I, I know that's really, a team. I try to, to decenter myself because I'm I'm the founder and I'm the chief creative. But you know, this is so much of this work centers in really the artist vision um, and how we work as a team with those artists to co-create that. And I, I'm really trying not to be on that stage, taking up the space uh, and creating more, more visibility for the community of artists now. Why, why do you, why do you, and I, and I want to put voice to that and say, yes, I hear you. Like this is Amplifier. It's not Aaron Huey, but why do you, why do you not want to be in the center of that? I mean, a lot of people love that kind of attention. Well, the, the issues are not really about issues that affect me as much. You know, if we're talking about issues that affect certain communities, I'm, I carry a lot of privilege, you know, because I'm a white male, but also just I'm economically uh, comfortable. I have social and financial capital. Um, I am not affected like the rest of the world is. And so for me to take up too much space there is just, it's inappropriate on a lot of levels. Uh, and really without like, without the power of those artists and their vision, you know, I do work with them to art direct what that ultimately looks like in, in a lot of cases, but without their vision, none of this would exist. So, you know, over time, we, we sought to find more and more ways to take this out of like the darkness of a back room of us designing things with one artist at a time and nobody knowing who did it and people getting confused and thinking it might be me or somebody else that's uh, not affected. And we've started developing platforms, like the platform we're running right now is a social network for artists. We have uh, right now a platform that's a community art platform at amplifier.org that's got 6,800 artist submissions where artists can interact with each other, see each other talking about the artwork. Uh, the best artwork gets elevated to the top through this system. Uh, and I think with that whole ecosystem of what we're doing in the behind the scenes with commissions and what's happening with people powered art, uh, when we merge it together in the right ways and, and create the right architecture for that and distribution, it's, that's what really makes the amplifier projects that you see now. So, I mean, there's, you've got, we're, we're at election day. Um, and for those people, election year now, um, but, but I'm going back to 2016 oh. on election day uh, for the people that are, are listening. Um, the, the art movement that Amplifier put together was the ones that, you know, I think probably the most iconic was the, the young woman in the American flag hijab that said, we the people are greater than fear. Um, people are parading around with this, holding it above their head. It became the, uh, the art of the DACA movement as well. Um, so you, you've made this radical departure from strictly photography. You still try to be a photographer and you still accomplish try? that. Wait, I'm still well, trying. You, you still try. You still try. <laughs> Keep trying, buddy. Um, no, you still do a very good job at it. And now uh, we, we're faced with not only another election cycle, yeah. um, but, but 2020 becomes the banner year of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you and I are chatting, texting back and forth, um, and, and you make a statement that is basically, I'm, you know, this is when I work best. And so I want to go into the, like, what, what, what's happening right now? What's happening with Amplifier? What's happening with you? What's happening with your family? Talk to me about okay. this moment in time um, and how you're responding both personally and, and professionally. 
Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, again, I'm, I'm again in one of these places where I have an incredible privilege to be able to like grow and work through all of this. And this is not the case of, of a huge swath of this world does not get to use this as a growing moment. Um, so right. I'm constantly aware of that fact. I've got a huge yard and space in Seattle and I've got good work and a clear purpose. And that's just not true of everybody else. But so we can say this is an incredible moment to grow, but it's also, it's also an unbelievable struggle. So yeah. within my own privilege, I, you know, I am trying to make work that I think will, will make the change we need. And I'm trying to be with my children while they're not in school and build new models for what it means to teach them about creativity and, uh, it's hard. I, I'm working 16 hour days on these projects. So uh, this has not been a, <clears throat> a break for me at all uh, during the pandemic. Uh, where do I want to, there's just so many ways to go with this. I'm not sure. I mean, this is just, there's so many ramifications of what's going to happen. This is going to be, this will have bigger impact on the world than 9-11 and we're still dealing with the impacts of 9-11, you know, 20 years later this will have a bigger impact than 9-11 in policy and economics and, 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 and in every aspect of our world in privacy. Uh, you know, a lot of people in my world are referencing the Erin Dottie Roy, you know, quotes and lecture that she made where she's essentially talking about the portal we have the opportunity to, grow, to go through, you know, are we gonna, are we gonna carry all of our crap with us or are we gonna pare down and reinvent a new world? And, and I want to believe we can do that. And I believe that art is, a, is an incredibly important part of that. So a lot of the work that we're doing with artists is right now trying to get them to think about building the signposts to that new future. You know, what do we want to, what do we want to take with us? What do we want that new world to look like? Um, I mean, you're in some policy discussions or you're at least in, in um, you're privy to some discussions that other people might not be, or m many people are not. And, in both in terms of art, but in terms of what the potential for this future might look like. I mean, what are you hearing and what do you, what do you hope and what are you, what are you scared of? Mm. Well, the, the hope fear can be combined in many of the cases, like, you know, after the recession in 2008, you know, there was Occupy and there was the Tea Party and we're going to have something like both of those, but like a thousand or 10,000 times bigger, maybe. And so, you know, what does Occupy times 10,000 look like after we've gone down this, this economic road for a while and it starts really hitting? Uh, there's a great opportunity in there. And I, like I'm working with partners uh, to imagine and build the symbols of what a just economic system might look like. How do we demand a just economic system uh, that, that is people powered and that's, you know, there's opportunity there. And there's also in that exact same moment, the opportunity for tyranny, you know, and for, right. you know, this work, we're, we're going to go into a period of extremes where it'll probably be a checkerboard all over the world. Some places, a huge breakthrough will happen in a, in a country or community that will unlock the kind of future they wanted to be in. And in other parts of the world, true tyranny will begin um, because this is a shock doctrine moment. You know, this is where like people with power take advantage of these moments. Uh, and this is going to be an extended shock that things are going to be happening behind the scenes. So we have to stay pretty vigilant and demand those futures that we want. Uh, and I think building the symbols, whether it's as a, as a photojournalist or a photographer or any kind of storytelling, whether no matter what medium you're in, how do we build the symbols and to demand that future? or to, to wake people up to where it's going. And that those symbols and the waking up are, are essentially the work that you and Amplifier are trying to create in this open call for artists that's happening as we speak, right? Yeah, but also, I mean, but in any medium, photojournalists are, I, I think will be uncovering, you know, those paths as well. Like, I wouldn't necessarily separate the amplifier works too far from, from all the other ways we do storytelling. I think all storytellers, wherever our power is and wherever we can do the best work, we all still have that same, some similar duties.
What, um, what do you see in your, okay, a little bit of backstory quickly, because I want to get back to this, because I think it's really sort of the meat of the conversation, but um, what, what do you see, or can you explain to people Hawkeye's book real quick? <laughs> oh, we're going to Hawkeye, okay. Well, no, I mean, I, you know, I just, yeah. just. No, I, it, it's a funny one. It's a, it's a good, it's a good story just cause it's, it grew very organically. Like all these projects do. I'm not very good. I got a real ADHD brain. I can't, I have no executive functioning skills. I don't really plan stuff. I just feel my way into them. And Hawkeye was one of those projects, like the things that Hawkeye and I make together. And now the things that Juno and I make together, my four-year-old, but mm-hmm. Hawkeye Huey is my son. And when he was, four years old, we were going on a trip and I, I got him a camera. Uh, the trip was not actually to make photos. We were going to go make blanket forts in the desert and sleep in them. <laughs> See, that was the actual project. So there was a project in mind. We were going to sleep in blanket forts near like a near slab city. Um, and the wind came up and blew all the blankets away, but we had this camera. And so we started going around visiting people that I knew there and Hawkeye started shooting photos and it was back in the wild west days where you when you and I and a, a small handful of people actually controlled the Nat Geo Instagram stream. Right. Anything we wanted, as long as it had to do with photography and looked decent. And I put up a picture of this four-year-old with a gigantic camera on his chest, a Fuji Instax that spit out real Polaroid style analog film. And I put that up on the, he was standing in front of Salvation Mountain, which was, is this a man-made mountain in Southern California that's all rainbow striped. It's amazing looking. And I put it on the Nat Geo feed and everybody said, oh gosh, we got to see those pictures. And I wasn't going to put them on mine. Um, <laughs> so I started an account that day. And at the end of the day, it had 15,000 followers. Huh. And that just snowballed. And it became this thing where Hawkeye and I started hitting the road and we just go on these crazy adventures. And I just tell my wife, Hawk and I are going to Las Vegas. We'll be back in three days. <laughs> we just like go to Vegas and cruise the strip and shoot photos of gamblers. And, and I just collected these boxes and boxes and boxes of thousands of Polaroids, you know, or, or Fuji Instax analog images and would sort them and, you know, edit them and, and scan them and put, put the best ones into an Instagram stream. And, you know, it got up to like 200,000 people were following this thing, but, it, it really was not about trying to create Hawkeye Huey, the photographer. It was tr- about trying to create Hawkeye Huey, the engaged human being. Like how could we use this tool to go to be an excuse to do anything anywhere we wanted and to just go on crazy adventures and meet people, just be able to walk up to anybody in the street and say, Hey, we, we want to know about you. Can we talk to you? And I wanted my son to have those kinds of experiences. So I still don't really think of it. Photography was the output, but I don't think of it as a photography project, really, in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, but it, it was made into an, an amazing book. I yeah, of- we made a book that was called um, Cow, uh, <laughs> Gosh, it has a really long list. Do I have a copy of it here? Shoot. Uh, I have one. Cow, it's Cowboys, Indians, Hobos, Gamblers, Patriots, Tourists, and Sunsets. Yes. <laughs> it was like, those were the subject matter in the book. It was like road trips through the American West. And when I look at it, I still think that it stands alongside a lot of the great books about the American West because nobody had ever seen the perspective of a four-year-old, literally that perspective of looking up from that low of a height of some of these same iconic people and places and locations that, you know, a lot of our heroes like Bill Allard and all these people have shot in the past, um, you know, reframed through the eyes of a four-year-old. It was truly truly unique and that's a rare thing to find in the photo world it, it was so pure that it made me lose interest in my own photography for a, for a minute while we were doing it because it was more pure than anything i could make so i mean that that, that brings up two really amazing points one about purity i want to talk about that but also a shift in perspective yeah um it seems like you've devoted most of your career to rather than the creation of imagery or something beautiful Rather, it's about shifting perspective or illuminating. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and then the question of purity, I mean, explore that a little bit. What do you mean? Oh, I think that part's really important. I mean, we're trained. Like Hawkeye Huey, when he was making those photographs, he didn't have a memory bank full 
of ideas of good light and bad light and images he was told were successful, like, or not. He didn't, mm -hmm. there was no such thing as good light or bad light. And he didn't know what Nat Geo wanted to fill the formula of a double page spread about a topic, right? Like we have all kinds of stuff that are pretty hard coded into our minds that inform how we frame imagery and a four-year-old doesn't. So often for him, it just was like, get the thing in the middle of the picture. Yeah, right? yeah. It's, uh, and I just loved living through that. I loved living through a lens that was, that hadn't yet been formed, that had, wasn't colored by anything. There was no background or knowledge. He didn't, he didn't look at old work and say, how can I improve this? Or didn't compare <laughs> it to other things. It just was exactly what it was in that moment. Totally pure. <laughs> there's, I mean, there's, and, and he's gone on to do other projects as well. And I guess my, my question is, how are they uh, in that, I mean, Juno is still very young. Hawkeye's getting a little bit older now. Um, yeah, Hawkeye's now 10. Juno's I mean, four. So Juno's now the age Hawkeye was when he started. And now Juno and I are going on our adventures. And how, do, how are they interpreting this moment and your I, I, energy around it? As a way to, it's just a thing they do with dad. It's not even about photography at all. So, but I mean, this moment right now with, with the pandemic and staying oh. home and like, I'm just curious about their perspective. Well, right now it's just kind of like, it links in with dad art hour and like every day from like 3.30 to dinner, you know, it might be two hours, it might be three hours. We do some crazy project. Uh, we dig a six foot deep hole in the backyard or we nail stuff together and make wooden sculptures or we, uh, you know, we do big cutouts and paint them or we go on a photo walk and take photographs of, uh, you know, spring in Seattle, like macro photos of plants. They're all just, I think that they, they know I'm a manic maker and that when they're <laughs> with me, we, we make together and it's how we explore the world together and, our, and it's how we explore our parent-child relationship too. I think that's what a lot of the base of it is. Do you, do you feel like um, there's, there's fear in them around this or is it, are they sort of not uh, no, interpreting they, it that way? You can't see that far out into the world to think about the future economic collapse or anything. I think as long as parents don't panic and stay present with their kids, the kids don't, are not going to have fear. If you, the kids pick up on the sadness or anxiety of, of parents, then, then that will create its own ripple effect and create their sadness and anxiety. So, I mean, you, you, so your work, there's so, it's, it's so funny. We're almost at the end of this. I, I, I do do still do photography too. <laughs> <laughs> and it's good photography. I'm doing one right now where I'm going through FaceTime using the camera in FaceTime. I can trigger the camera on the other side while talking to somebody and I'm going into homes where people have, uh, have COVID and uh, asking them, I'm interviewing them and asking them to do portraits of them in the houses that I can't get to. And the whole first chapter has been uh, mothers giving birth with COVID or surrounded by COVID. And that's through National Geographic right now. How did you, where did that idea come from to use the FaceTime photo trigger? Well, we, I just, I had been hearing stories. The first story was a, a friend of our family that we heard had just given birth and another friend was delivering groceries to them. And I thought, oh my God, I, I want to figure out a way to photograph that. But I didn't want to like go photograph outside of windows. So um, I had heard from quite a few people you could photograph through FaceTime. And I thought that it would be a worthy experiment uh, and I put out a call and a handful of mothers, I didn't expect it to be all mothers, but primarily mothers reached out and started saying, I, I have a birthing story too. Do you want to hear it? And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting experiment because it does not make like traditional, beautiful National Geographic photography. It's really a lot of this is more about the experiment than a perfect postcard product that would be mm -hmm. a huge spread in a magazine. Mm -hmm. I am as interested in the process behind this and the layers of text and the layers of how we interact in how we're messaging each other and the audio by itself to be able to hear those human voices is sometimes more powerful than the picture I can make. Just the audio clip. Yeah.
I mean, do you, do, where do you, what's the ultimate output of this? Uh, do you, or do you even know yet? No, totally organic still. They let me, they're going on faith. I'm going on faith that I'll be able to find enough stories to weave together um, about, partially about the, I think a lot of it will be about the approach itself, but of like, I've got to wait to see how the stories connect. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one of the things that I'm really curious about, something you said early on in this is, you know, you, you, as a journalist, you still go in um, to situations like this, uh, but specifically the one you were talking about going in to document uh, public lands, mm-hmm. bears ears. Yeah. Um, and you go in and you allow yourself to be surprised and you allow yourself to be malleable and dynamic with your thought process, which I think is a sign of, and I'm not just saying this because I know you, but I think it's a sign of intelligence to be able to hold opposing ideas in your head. At the same time, your the the work that um some of the artwork has been viewed as very polarizing um you know divisive and and i'm curious how you answer that criticism when i know you as a person as an artist are are very comfortable exploring the areas of gray and trying to actually weed out black and white in the world but much of the artwork has been criticized as black and white making um, how do you like? How I'm do you so speak? I'm so curious that? where you're hearing that because I don't actually think it is. I think that when you really like analyze that art, might trigger people who think in a black and white way. Right. But the goal, again and again, in the stated mission, is not to make divisive work, but to make work that acts as a compass that points to the future we want to live in. We make the compass. We don't make work that says no. We don't make works that says we don't want this or stop that. There'll occasionally be a little piece, but like that, but. of our work is is forward-looking to where Mm -hmm. we want to go. And a lot of it is untouchable language. I mean, just the language behind things like the We the People stuff, it's it's American language from core documents of our our history. And it says things like protect each other, defend dignity, be, be greater than fear. Anybody who says that that is a polarizing idea or represents one side or another, inherently in its words i i don't know what to say to that you know we did actually even have we had we had trump supporters carrying some of that art on the inauguration day because it is red white and blue and it says something that's like not like shouldn't be labeled as red state or blue state um you know that gets different if we start talking about like uh putting out art about how everybody deserves health care because strangely there is a huge swath of the country that believes that not everybody deserves healthcare. <laughs> um, or, you know, so you will get pieces like that. If we put out a, an image on like healthcare or something, that'll be instantly polarizing because it'll trigger all of the people on each side to get yell their things that they yell. Right. Uh, for the most part, we try to try to, you know, build work that anybody can put up anywhere. And say, yeah, I believe that too. I mean, I don't, I'm not saying that I find it polarizing when I make this criticism. Yeah. I'm saying that, you know, if I post uh, specifically, you know, we the people, I get a lot of pretty, pretty vile feedback at times. And granted that it is, it is a vocal minority. It is, yeah. it is the loudest minority that percolates to the top with a lot of vitriol. Sure. But um, I, I, I'm, and, and I think your answer is, is beautiful. It's, it's, I, I wish more people could understand art that is not, or this art is not necessarily meant to sit, be one-sided or, or right or, you know, left or red or blue, but rather I think the way you answer it, this is the, this is the sort of to point towards magnetic North of the future mm-hmm. that we want. Yeah. Um, so that, that's all I was getting at. I, um, I have like, you only got five minutes left, bro. Where are you I gonna- know, I know. So I'm going to take it. Where are you going to go? How are you going to wrap gonna, this up? I'm going to, I can't, I can't wrap this up. We just need to have you back on at a different time. Um, again, because I think this is yeah. one of the best conversations we've had. Um, I also, I do want to ask something and it's a pretty cliche question, uh-huh. uh, but I'm, I'm going to go there. Um, 
Huey is known for showing up in gold sequin toms or like what look like gold sequin toms. It used to be Tom. I have many, I'm brandless for the most okay, part. Okay, he's brandless, sorry. Gold sequin shoes. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to brand really you that. Really shiny gold of any kind. Yeah. Any kind. They are loud. They are, uh, I just, I, what's the story? Like only, what? When I'm, only when I'm fundraising or public speaking, but I can't wear them if I'm public speaking about genocide. And that's one of my rules. Uh, <laughs> and anytime I go in the National Geographic office, I okay. would not walk into the Nat Geo office without gold shoes on. Uh, and I think it's because originally, you know, I, the gold shoes started on the walk across America. I spray painted a pair of shoes gold in the parking lot in Encinitas, California. Then I walked 3,349 miles. Uh, and it was like a superpower. Maybe it was a subconscious desire to add power <laughs> to my walk. But I think it's still true maybe if I dug into that, like you can't wear gold shoes and be half-assed. You'd look like some <laughs> asshole. You're around in gold shoes. Like it's a reminder of how lucky I am and how privileged I am to be able to do this work and a reminder to celebrate that every time I walk, especially into that building, to celebrate that. Like what what an incredible privilege to have, right? Yeah, that's a that's a beautiful that's a beautiful sentiment. Um, I, I the the only the only other question that I have right now is, we are living in a world that is uncertain, and you've you've created a, a life uh, by pursuing uncertainty and going into voids that are shapeless and formless, and and finding figure and purpose in them. Is there anything that you've learned in mm. that process that you can apply right now to yourself and everybody else or offer to everybody? Yeah, else? well, more and more I'm realizing that like this is an interdependent world, not an independent world. And the like collaboration is why I've been able to do any of this work. And so every project I'm excited about involves other people that have huge strengths that I do not have. You know, whether it's in hmm. AR or animation, machine learning, uh, you know, artificial intelligence, like I want to work in all these fields with people that, that have the knowledge that I don't have. And when we combine our ideas together and we go in faith forward, you know, even just like all these projects we've been describing, there isn't a blueprint or it's a very organic path. But when we find the right partners and go in faith, these are the results. You can build this kind of thing. Uh, you can build, and, and so I, I, never, I never wonder whether this stuff will work. I go forward knowing that it will as long as I keep collaborating. So it's, it's the message of unity, which I think is a, a perfect, perfect bow to put on this conversation. I think <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I love to learn about you. Uh, I, you know, I, I've always been a huge admirer of your work, but I think it's, um, it's illuminating to hear you speak about it. And I hope that um, people listening will go out, check out Aaron's work, check out the work of Amplifier, um, look into the conversation, even if you disagree, but be part of it. Because I th I ultimately, I think the, the, the conversation of unity is one where we are not necessarily unified in our opinion, but we are willing to be unified in our discourse. And um, I really appreciate the work that you put into the world. Thank you, brother. And uh, the, the, the range that we're talking about, uh, I'm launching a website to share kind of the larger, these larger bodies of work called Hello Prototype. Mm -hmm. HelloPrototype.com will be like the larger portfolio of all of these kinds of media experiments and how I'm thinking about making. And because I do consider all of this like an ongoing sketch and prototype. Uh, well, I love it. I, lo I can't wait for people to check that out. I can't wait to see it. Um, and again, we'll put everything in the show notes of, of uh, places that people can track Aaron down. And um, I just really appreciate the time today. I know you're super busy right now. And uh, I want to get into some other topics on the next episode when we bring you back when we're not all in lockdown. In the all right, way. brother. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thanks yeah. so much, Aaron. Yeah, we appreciate it, brother. All right. Um, I'm All right. My next call right now. Do it. Get okay. out of here. Bye. Later. Well, that was a amazing conversation, Corey. 
where'd you where'd you go chris where were you cj i had lots of things to add i just really didn't want to interrupt the flow and in all honesty you and you and aaron obviously have such a great uh rapport and it was just an amazing conversation i, I was happy to to be a an audience member in that one so um and and hopefully we can have aaron back on um and I just, I, I, I'm such a fan. I'm even a bigger fan now after that conversation. Well, I, I and, and I'm kidding. I think uh, just the rapport that Aaron and I have in our history lends itself well to that kind of rapid fire conversation that goes down all sorts of roads. And I appreciate um, you facilitating the conversation and being a part of it in the way that you were. And uh, I really appreciate Aaron's insights uh, that he shared today. Just as, again, as a, as a contributing member uh, in the fullest way to culture and society and to art. Um, and yeah, I, it's, uh, that, was a, that was a hell of a ride and hopefully we can have him back soon. I hope so. Check out Aaron at AaronHuey.com, his organization Amplifier.org and HelloPrototype.com and of course on Instagram and, um, and all the social medias. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next time.